Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Schizophrenia is a process found in about 1% of the general population, and when we expand it to other schizophrenic-like conditions, the number obviously and very significantly grows. The discovery of Thorazine in the 1950s, many years ago, opened one of the major doors to understanding the biology of schizophrenia, and as a result, there was a development of many medications that do help, but we are not there yet, as they say. Andy Cutler is a research psychiatrist who has been involved in the development of new medications, and he very kind joins us today to give us an update. Dr. Cutler, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, good morning, Abby. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and there have been a lot of developments since the last time we talked. And that's where we want to get to, but I would like to spend just a couple minutes to look at the history. Can you give us a very short history on the evolution of treatments, the role of the dopamine receptors, the serotonin receptors, other things that we've learned to that have served to take us to where we are today? Certainly. Well, I did my research training on dopamine receptor pharmacology almost 25, 30 years ago now, and at that time, the prevailing theory was the dopamine theory of schizophrenia. We knew that there was too much dopamine activity in the limbic system of the brain, and this led to positive symptoms, hallucinations, delusions, but not enough dopamine in other critical parts of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex. This led to cognitive impairment, negative symptoms, and depression, mood problems in these patients, which were all well described back at the turn of the last century. So most of our medications, uh, even up till now, have targeted the dopamine system. Initially, dopamine blockers, as you mentioned, chlorpromazine and haloperidol, perfenazine, many others, were predominantly blockers or antagonists of the D2 receptor. And this certainly helped with the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, but unfortunately, they magnified some of the other problems and caused a new set of problems, including prolactin elevation and significant neurologic side effects, EPS, tardive dyskinesia, and such. Newer generation of medications, starting with clozapine and then risperidone in the late 80s, early 90s, added something else to the mix. They added more receptors binding, and, and especially we think serotonin receptor binding. Risperidone, for instance, has higher affinity for the serotonin 2A or 5-HT2A receptor than for the D2 receptor. And what this seems to do is help mitigate some of those neurologic side effects, decrease the risk, although they're not entirely free of these things. And the hope was that they would help some with negative symptoms and mood problems, although that's been uh, not as good, and also the cognitive impairment. Newer medications tend to be associated with weight gain and some metabolic issues as well. So clearly we're not fully there yet, either from an efficacy point of view or a safety and tolerability point of view, and, and newer treatments are needed. As far as the neurobiology, the, the latest excitement is in two areas. One is people are realizing that probably the primal foundational problem here is abnormalities of GABA interneurons causing dysfunction in the glutamate system. So glutamate is a whole new avenue that people are or pursuing medications for. And then there's a new receptor system, believe it or not, that was discovered only in 2001 called the TAR1 receptor. That stands for trace amino acid receptor type 1. And I was just recently at a research meeting where data from a new medication that binds to that receptor was presented that was shown to be effective for schizophrenia. So it's a very exciting time as we get beyond the traditional monoamines of dopamine and serotonin. Are the current treatments, however, at least reasonably successful? I mean, it's always good to have something new, of course, and to go on to other things, but research is usually where there is a need. So does, is this suggest that the current systems are inhibited by their effectiveness or, as you mentioned, the side effects? Is that one of the stimulators? Certainly. The 
current crop of medications, while often very effective for these positive symptoms of schizophrenia, they really don't address what are the more disabling and long-term crippling symptoms, which are the negative symptoms, cognitive impairment, and depression. So there really is a need for even greater efficacy, both broader and more consistent. Up to 30% of patients are still what we call treatment resistant. Some of those do respond to clozapine, but the problem is clozapine has some very significant safety issues, including agranulocytosis. Give us just, again, one of your excellent but brief differentiations or explanations would be a better word of what's the difference between positive symptoms and negative symptoms. Yes, well, I like to think of positive symptoms as adding to normal brain function, and that would be hallucinations, which are abnormal perceptions. That's hearing voices or seeing things that actually aren't there. Also, delusions, which are false beliefs, and these are often paranoid or grandiose delusions, and they can be quite bizarre. Positive symptoms tend to happen, especially during periods of relapse. This is a chronic illness marked by periods of relapse and recurrence. As I mentioned, they tend to respond very well to our current crop of dopamine antagonists. The symptoms that are enduring, even in between episodes, are what we call the negative symptoms. And again, I think of those as taking something away. And so the negative symptoms include avolition or a kind of a lack of interest, motivation, or will. Also, alogia, they don't speak as much. The thought seems to be slowered and devoid of, co- of significant content. So these are people who tend to sit around, not really engage in life. These are the symptoms that are most disturbing, especially to family members. They will tell you that my my son or my daughter just sort of faded away and disappeared or vanished. One of the things that comes up very frequently is are we treating the condition, are we simply controlling it, or are we fixing it? These are not like antibiotics. Your thoughts about that? We're learning more and more that this is a neurodegenerative illness, meaning that literally time is brain. Over time, if not adequately treated, this illness causes neurodegeneration and attacks the brain. You can actually see shrinkage on brain scans over time. We do know that the single biggest determinant of how well you're going to do your whole life with schizophrenia is the percentage of time in the first three years of the illness that you have an antipsychotic medication in your brain. And this brings up the critical nature of compliance or adherence to medications. Again, if medications have safety or tolerability issues, and I would argue that, of course, weight gain and sedation or uh, EPS, which can be really uh, disturbing. EPS includes drug-induced Parkinsonism, actesthesia, which is an intense sense of restlessness, or dystonia, very painful muscle contractions. These things then might cause someone to stop their medication and then leave them at risk for further brain damage. What about onset? I've heard more than once, and I agree with you, that the sooner that we can identify it and start some treatment, the better chance that these folks have. But historically, at least when I was in training, schizophrenia was something that first appeared late adolescence, early 20s, that sort of thing. How far back can we go? How far back do we know that it's safe to put people on medicines? There is research into this area. Many times people with schizophrenia have relatively normal childhoods, although careful research shows some soft neurologic signs in many of them, relatively normal childhoods. And then what happens is there's a period that we call the prodrome where some things start happening where the patient might start getting more withdrawn, sort of vague, paranoid kind of thought, depression. And a lot of research is going on now into this prodromal period, which is right before, it can be one to two years before the first overt psychotic break where the patient really has significant psychotic symptoms. We think this is a period of 
time that if we can identify patients and intervene, perhaps starting them on appropriate medications, we might be able to head off the consequences of this illness. The problem with the prodrome is it's not very specific. In other words, you can have this kind of prodromal syndrome and go on to develop bipolar disorder, ADHD, autism, or schizophrenia. And so the thinking is, should we be starting these people on medications that have these significant risks if they're not even going to go on to develop schizophrenia? So it's an area of intense research. As we develop less toxic medications, perhaps that changes that risk-benefit ratio that we have to go through. Needless to say, the financial and emotional burden of schizophrenia is enormous on the families, on the patient. It's a major problem for our society. Is there any change in the attitude towards helping people with this condition? I think that more and more mental illness is getting destigmatized, and people are realizing as technology advances and we can demonstrate more and more the medical neurobiological effects that this is, quote, a real medical illness, I think that people are starting to notice that the more money we can spend on the research, the more potential benefit here, because as you said, this is one of the most costly illnesses we have financially and socially. The problem is, of course, it attacks people right as they're getting ready to launch into a adulthood and independence. And so then they use up significant resources in hospitalization and clinic visits, in lost productivity, emotional pain and turmoil in a family. So it's really important that we do develop newer and better treatments, not only medications, but we do have some evidence-based interventions that include various types of targeted therapy, vocational and educational rehabilitation and things like this that could help people, if the illness is stabilized, to reintegrate into society and to continue with their normal development. I want to get back to the TAR issue here, but there's been, been a lot of discussion of late, and perhaps it overlaps with the glutamate theories, of course, that the role of inflammatory processes in psychiatric conditions, in, including schizophrenia, your observations on that? This is one of the hottest areas right now as I go to these research meetings. People are really finding that in many medical illnesses, not only mental illnesses, we're learning, for instance, that heart disease, a significant contributor to heart disease is inflammation. For many years, a bi-directional relationship has been noted between heart disease and diabetes and mental illness, if you will. So if you have diabetes, you're more likely to have depression. If you have depression, you're more likely to have diabetes. And the same with heart disease. And one of the possible common links here could be abnormal inflammation inflammation, an abnormal activation of our inflammatory system or our immune system, which is, of course, there to protect us from pathogens and infections and things. We're learning more and more that not only can inflammatory mediators, so-called cytokines, cross the blood-brain barrier. We tend to think of the blood-brain barrier as a solid wall. But under uh, certain conditions, including stress and other things, these inflammatory mediators can cross. There also are the immune cells called microglia within the brain, and if they're abnormally activated, they can release these kinds of mediators that are quite toxic to nerve cells. And so now people are starting to use this knowledge not only to help with diagnosis, but also with treatment. And we're starting to look at targeted interventions to treat mental illnesses. We are also learning that probably in the early phases of schizophrenia, there is an extreme inflammatory reaction, including abnormal activation of a glutamate system that may cause some of the early symptoms of schizophrenia and may start this process.
process in motion. We think that over time, if patients are allowed to progress and have relapse after relapse, that significant damage is done to the brain, and then they almost have what we call burnout kind of syndrome, where there's just not a lot of further improvement you can expect from someone with our medications. There's a sense of excitement, and it's the same excitement that I felt, and in, in, in you, we are close enough in age, when the second-generation antipsychotics started to come out that, oh, boy, we have new tools. We're moving ahead. Yes. Now that the TAR receptors are known and we're really looking at the inflammatory processes, role of glutamate, tell us more then. Let's use that as a segue. Tell us more about what TAR is all about. So the TAR1 receptor is, again, the trace amino acid receptor. There are trace amino acids in our brain that have been hard to measure. The monoamines are also amines, for instance, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. But there are certain other amines that are present in much smaller concentrations in the brain. The monoamines are ubiquitous, of course. And so this has made it hard up until recently to identify these receptors. Now, these receptors tend to be highly localized in the limbic system or in parts of the brain that control emotions and thoughts and behavior, especially uh, deeper into the brain and also in an area called the prefrontal cortex that has to do with executive function, regulation of our thoughts and behaviors, and response to external and internal stimuli. So the thinking is that manipulating these receptors could really be helpful in psychiatric illnesses. These receptors are tightly linked to the monoamine and glutamate systems, so this might be a way of indirectly getting to glutamate and dopamine, for instance, which are abnormal, again, abnormally regulated in schizophrenia. It's exciting as we found the new tool. And the promising thing for people who suffer from schizophrenia and their families is that there is still new material being discovered, and that has to be reassuring. It's a step in the right direction. We have two issues, really. We have the issue, as I mentioned, of, I would say, incomplete efficacy. We have fairly good efficacy for the majority of patients, again, with the positive symptoms, but we're not treating the broad range of symptoms. The second problem, as I mentioned, is tolerability and safety. And we have two major areas there. One is weight and metabolic, and the other is the neurologic, the EPS, but also something that we haven't really talked about yet, and that's called tardive dyskinesia, which is potentially a devastating side effect of abnormal involuntary movements that can become irreversible even if the medication is stopped. So some of these newer medications in development right now that has a kind of unique way of modulating dopamine and also goes intracellularly to help regulate the glutamate system. There's another one, as we mentioned, that has to do with the TAR1 receptor. And both of these medicines appear to have very little weight gain or metabolic problems and very low risk for the neurologic side effects, including potentially tardive dyskinesia. So the excitement is there. I think your comments about the second generation of antipsychotics is warranted. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. And these findings have to be replicated, of course, in, in clinical trials. We treat small groups of patients, relatively small hundreds of patients, whereas in the real world, we're going to treat thousands or more patients. So we, we need to see what happens there. But I share your excitement. This is actually, you know, you and I have been doing this about the same amount of time. And I can tell you for a while I got a little discouraged, but in the past, just the past couple of years, this is about as excited as I've been in my whole research career. So hopefully something will lead to new developments here. Many years ago, I was given a metaphor, and I don't remember the person who did it, but they, they do get credit for it. 
They described schizophrenia as the Hudson River at New York City, and we were doing everything we could to clean up the pollution in the Hudson River at New York City level. He said the goal is to find out the glutamate system, the pollution, upstream. Stop that and then we'll have less of a problem when it gets down to New York City. I liked that analogy. It just seems that that's the direction we're going into. Glutamate and GABA are the two most ubiquitous chemicals in our brain, and the brain really functions as a yin-yang between glutamate and GABA, glutamate being the major excitatory neurotransmitter, and GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. So we're finding more and more now there's some new medication that have been shown to be effective for depression that modulate glutamate, such as ketamine, which can be rapidly effective. There's also a medication in development that modulates the GABA system for depression, and one was recently approved, actually, to treat postpartum depression, which is beyond the scope of our discussion today. But the fact that we have newer medications going beyond the traditional monoamines and that maybe more directly targeting what the, the problems really are with glutamine and GABA. The landscape is changing, Andy. The landscape is changing. And I want to thank you so much for discussing these changes with us, and we'll get together in a year or two to do another catch-up. Andy Cutler is a research psychiatrist, and he has been involved in the development and actual some of the real clinical use of these medications over the years. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this great discussion. I look forward to talking with you again.